Well, good to see you all here this evening. And just by way of disclaimer, I guess, um, I have finished off uh, my uh, multiple antibiotics that I was on, and now they put me on an antifungal medicine just to try and wipe anything and everything out. And uh, one of the uh, side effects is it leaves me a little bit dingy. Why are you laughing? So if I pause and stop talking, just clap your hands or do something and I'll come back to earth. But uh, very glad to be here tonight and looking forward to our time this Sunday. A message I actually wrapped up a couple of weeks ago thinking I was going to be here on Sunday. Uh, And uh, now we'll look at Acts 21, 15 to 25 uh, this Sunday morning. I encourage you to read ahead and come and join us. Well, for tonight, open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 3. 2 Samuel chapter 3. Now, back in chapter 2, we noted something that we touched a little bit on this past Sunday, recognizing that the actions of a person who walks in the flesh are going to be different from those who walk in the Spirit. We made the point on Sunday that belief impacts behavior. Our chapter tonight is going to remind us of another aspect, if you will, of that same truth, and that is that people who walk in the Spirit sometimes revert to walking in the flesh, and the flesh will gain the upper hand momentarily at times. Now, we've seen this happen in the life of the man that is described by God as a man after his own heart. We've seen David vacillate between walking according to the will and word of God, being directed by the Spirit, and making decisions based on his flesh and emotions. And this has happened back and forth, and this vacillation has been recorded for us multiple times. As we noted all the way back in 1 Samuel 27, One of the instances where David said in verses 1 and 2 in his heart, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines, and Saul will despair of me to seek me any more in any part of Israel, so I shall escape out of his hand. Then David arose and went over with the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, the king of Gath. Now, We've noted this multiple times that David made this decision in his heart. The heart here representing the seat of emotions and feelings. It's not that David prayed and the Lord directed. It's not even that David consulted the Urim and Thummim in order to determine what the Lord would have him to do. David let his emotions lead to a season of personal failure and poor reputation in spite of the fact that the Lord had protected him for over two decades from Saul's attempts to capture and kill him. Now, the commentators are divided as to how we should view the chapter in front of us, whether David is in the flesh or whether he is walking in the spirit. And the majority tend to side with David, that the actions that we're going to read tonight are actually rightful. And David was doing what was right before the Lord. Now, I will say this, they could be right, the majority that is, but they could also be wrong. And the reason I believe we'll find tonight that the majority opinion is actually in error and that David is actually operating in the flesh is twofold. One, he directly disobeys a command of God, and we'll talk about that in a few moments, concerning taking multiple wives, even as a king. And also there's no mention of prayer prior to a covenant 
he enters into with Abner. And after this covenant is made, Abner actually ends up dead. Now, two things that the Spirit will never lead us to do. One, ignore the Word of God. Say something. Amen. The Spirit will never lead us to ignore the Word of God, and the Spirit will never lead us to make covenants to appease or satisfy our enemies. Now, among our three observations from chapter 2 in our message that we titled The Spirit and the Flesh, we noted this. The Spirit and the Flesh can never lead to the same outcome. And it is the outcome of the events that are recorded in our chapter tonight that will lead us to our title and topic for the evening. Now, I will say I toyed with a couple of titles, and our title tonight is a bit lighthearted. And I actually thought maybe we could just call our time together tonight, Save the Drama for Your Mama, but I couldn't figure out a way for that to work. So we've settled on something that we have all experienced, something we would all do well to avoid something that is very clearly what's happening in our text and in our world today. And our title tonight, again, corny alert, I'm medicated. Our title tonight is simply Soap Opera Living. Soap Opera Living is our title. I couldn't help but think of all the things we're reading looking like many of the soap operas of our day. I'm sure most of us have known someone at some point in time who live in a constant state of drama. There's always turmoil around them. Anybody know what I'm talking about here tonight? There's people that seem to always surround themselves with some type of catastrophe, and usually it's self-imposed, and it's often due to doing what David does here, or doing what David did not do, which was seek the Lord before he entered into an agreement. Now, Luke 6, 46 to 49 says, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug a deep, who dug deep, and that was Italian, dug a deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on what? The rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently. And immediately it did what? It fell and the ruin of that house was great. Well, we're going to see the ruin of Saul's house this week and next. And we all recognize that life has its trials and tribulations, yet doing what the Lord says will keep our houses intact and help us avoid soap opera living. Now we're going to learn from our text how to avoid and avert Our lives becoming just a series of dramatic events or living in a constant state of drama and deception like we'll see in our text as we examine a sordid tale of lies, deception, murder, and immorality that describe much of the life of the man after God's own heart. We've got a lot of verses to cover. We'll start with 1 through 11 of 2 Samuel 3. So would you stand and read with me, please, 2 Samuel chapter 3, verses one through 11. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David grew stronger and stronger and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His first was Amnon by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. His second was Chiliab by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. 
The third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, Sheptatiah, the son of Abitai. And the sixth, Ethraim, by David's wife, Igla. These were born to David in Hebron. Now it was so, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah and the daughter of Aiah. So Isbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone in to my father's concubine? Then Abner became very angry at the words of Isbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul your father, to his brothers, and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David, and you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman? May God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not do for David, as the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul, and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba, a phrase that simply means from the north to the south. And he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. You may be seated. Well, our chapter, as you see, is off to a wonderful start already. And the long war between Saul and David's house wasn't necessarily constant military conflict. It could have very well been a battle of rhetoric, much like a cold war and positioning and posturing like we see happening in our world today. But as time marched on, David's house was getting stronger and stronger, and that of Saul was growing weaker throughout these continuing conflicts. Now, a common means by which to establish a household and its power and authority was to record the number of sons born in to any particular household. And here we have a list of six sons born from six different women to David in Hebron. Now, here's what we need to take note of. Back in Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 17, the Lord said to Israel through Moses, when you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again, neither shall he multiply, what's the next word? Wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. In other words, the Lord said, when I put a man as king over you, he is not to exploit the people through heavy taxation, nor is he to multiply his family and household through multiple wives. And we know that David and Solomon both fell prey to these particular things in their own lives. Now, while it may have been a cultural norm, and it certainly was, for kings to multiply the number of wives and therefore sons through them, we need to remember that we as God's people don't live according to cultural norms. We don't let culture dictate our actions. We don't let culture determine our moral decisions and coinciding actions. We make our decisions based on the word of God, which David here obviously ignores. Now, 
There's much to be said concerning David's disobedient actions. But the primary thing for us to note is that his sons and their futures clearly tell us of the consequences of David's decision to disobey the word of God. Amnon is a man that we would later meet and read of the rape of his half-sister Tamar and then the killing of Amnon by his half-brother Absalom, who is in the list of men we have here and becomes rather infamous in the latter years of David's life. Chileab, Shephatiah, and Ethraim are only mentioned again here and in uh, genealogy or family tree given in First Chronicles 3, 1 to 4. Now, as a biblical practice, normally when someone's name is mentioned and nothing else is written about them, it's usually because they are either an unrighteous or unworthy person or did nothing notable with their lives for the sake of God and his kingdom. Absalom would later try and kill David and lead a civil war against him. Adonijah, another one of the sons named here, would seek to seize the throne both from David when he was old and dying and from Solomon. And he would eventually take one of the king's concubines and he was executed for this action. Now, this whole scene becomes a nearly lifelong soap opera for David as he is constantly undermined and betrayed by those who came from his own loins. Now, in verse 6, our attention is drawn back to Abner and Ishbosheth as Abner grows in power over the house of Saul and over the puppet king, Ishbosheth, that he had put in place. And Ishbosheth decides he needs to make a power move of his own and undermine Abner. And he creates a story of something that was punishable by death in the land of Israel and in the culture of that time, in that he accused him of sleeping with one of the king's concubines, something that we mentioned a moment ago that Adonijah was guilty of and was executed for. Now, Abner gets angry. He says to Ishbosheth, am I some kind of dog's head of Judah? And that was a huge insult of that day. I don't exactly know what the phrase means, but all the commentators reported that this was something that would clearly rattle anyone's cage if they were accused of being a dog's head. And he falsely says, uh, uh, Abner that is, I have shown loyalty to your father's house. The truth was, he was actually trying to build his own kingdom and Ishbosheth was just a means to an end. He says then, and this is how you repay me. I haven't turned you over to David. I haven't given the kingdom over to him, even though the Lord said David is going to be the king over all Israel. And Ishbosheth did not respond because he was afraid of Abner. Now, here's what we need to consider from these opening 11 verses and come to an understanding. Our lives are not meant to be lived like a soap opera. Amen. Our lives are not meant to be lived like a soap opera. Now, here's the thing. David knew he wasn't supposed to accumulate wives, and he did anyway. Abner knew that David was supposed to be king, but he anointed or appointed Ishbosheth anyway. Now, here's how this translates into a point of application. It's consistent with our title. Not quite as corny, but you'll get the point. Listen this evening. Obedience now is the best way to avoid drama later. Obedience now is the best way to avoid drama later. Think about all we mentioned a moment ago. 
Amnon reaping Tamar. Amnon then being killed by Absalom. Adonijah undermining David and Solomon and then being executed for the very thing that Abner was accused of by Ishbosheth. Now, if Abner would have acted on what he knew God had said about King David and fallen under David's leadership at Saul's death, Saul's death, then verse one would not even be in the Bible. There would have been no extended period of war between David's and Saul's house. So further upstream, there had been obedience on David's part to what Deuteronomy said, and the Lord spoke to the ones who would be kings in the future. If Abner would have simply acknowledged that God had chosen a man after his own heart to be king and had rejected Saul and acted on that, all of these things we're reading about tonight could have been avoided, but they weren't. 2 Corinthians 7.10 reminds us that godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be what? Regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, I think we recognize that we live in a day where obedience to the word of God can bring us oppression, trials, and tribulations. But obedience now will not be regretted later, though disobedience now will often open the door for downstream drama later in life. Now, listen close. I think we all recognize that in the days of our lives, we have been surrounded by the young and restless. And they will only listen and follow after the words of the bold and the beautiful. And what they realize or fail to realize is that life is but a vapor and someday they will find themselves laying in general hospital, surrounded only by the dark shadows of an empty and meaningless past. Now, I want nothing to do with so far for living. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, Proverbs 22.8 reminds us quite simply and succinctly that he who sows iniquity will reap what? Sorrow. And the rod of his anger will fail. Now, while David maintained his status as the man after God's own heart, He created a lot of soap opera type drama in his life that could have been avoided simply by obeying the word of God in spite of the cultural norms and the pressures of his day. The same is true for you and I. Obedience now is the best way to avoid drama later. Somebody say, Amen. Now let's look at 12 through 21. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David saying, Whose is the land? Saying also, make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. And David said, good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, give me three weeks to pray first and fast and make sure that this is the Lord's will. No, that's not what it says. But one thing I require of you, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michael, whom I betrothed to myself, 
for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, a demand placed upon him by Saul. Saul thinking that if David tried it, he'd be killed by the Philistines. He actually brought back 200 foreskins of the Philistines and was awarded Michael as a wife. And Saul was very glad about that because he believed Michael would cause him trouble. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. Then her husband went along with her to Bahurim, weeping behind her. So Abner said to him, go return. And he returned. Now, Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, in time past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then, do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin, the tribe of Saul. Then Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Then Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my Lord, the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. Now, it is true that some of the things that we have seen are specific to the time and the place and the age that we live in. But the manifestations might be different in our day. But the soap opera living and the things that cause them are still with us. And I have to part ways again with the commentators who commend David here for making a covenant with Abner, the man who actually led the efforts to kill David and his efforts to capture him on behalf of Saul. Now, These verses are why I do not agree with their assessment. First of all, Abner acts like the kingdom is his to give. Israel was not Abner's. Israel is God's. And also, secondly, he gives specifics concerning the Lord's choosing of David in verse 18 and reveals he had full knowledge of what God wanted to do for king over Israel all along the way, even when he was pursuing David. Now, Thirdly, he comes to David in anger at Ishbosheth. He doesn't come in repentance. He doesn't come turning from his own willful ways in pursuit of power and acknowledge that David was the chosen one of God and the anointed and appointed king over Israel. Now, I would also disagree on commending David's behavior because of David's behavior. I got that from the Department of Redundancy Department, by the way. Now, listen. In Deuteronomy 24, 1-5, again, the Lord speaking to Israel through Moses, he says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of the house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, sends her out of the house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as a wife, then the former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is and what? An abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now, it is true that Michael was wrongfully taken from David just to 
give him or give her to Paltiel because Saul was jealous of David and the song that they sang over David and his conquest. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. But whatever the means was, she had become another man's wife. And the Lord said through Moses that when that happens, the original husband is not to take her back. Now, the other thing we need to mention is that David enters into this covenant with Abner without seeking the Lord. He says instead, get Michael back and we'll talk. Abner then says to the leaders of the 11 tribes, you guys were wanting David to be your king, so make him your king. Here's your chance. And then Abner took the news to David in Hebron that he had negotiated handing over the other 11 territories and with the blessing of all the elders elders of Israel, and David could indeed now be king. What we need to remember is 1 Samuel 15, 27 to 29, that when Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and tore it. So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Who tore the kingdom from Saul? God. Who gave it to a neighbor that is better than him? God. Did God needs Abner's help? Not necessarily. Now, it's not that God couldn't use this as a means to hand the kingdom over to David. But with all that we have seen thus far, it seems contrary to God's nature and character to use this means in order to do so. Abner is strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. Ishbosheth insults him. Abner defects to David. David disobeys God's commandment about taking wives. David later destroys a family in further disobedience to the word of God. Abner says, I control the kingdom. Whose land is it? It's my land. I'll give it to you is the implied meaning of his statement. And David makes a prayerless covenant with Abner to get the other 11 tribes under his reign. That doesn't sound like divine guidance to me. That sounds like a soap opera. Now, Here's our point, and here's what underscores why I believe we need to take this position in our interpretation concerning these verses and the one before and at, ones before and after. Listen, here's a reminder. God will never violate his own word to accomplish his will. God will never violate his own word to accomplish his will, nor will he ask us to violate his word to accomplish his will. Amen? Now, I would not dare to even hazard a guess at the number of times I've heard of people trying to make God's will happen in their own time or take the end justifies the means approach to their Christian life or calling. Now, God can use anyone and anything to accomplish his purposes. Amen. But he will never ask or require us to violate his word in order to do so. Abner was in violation of the will of God. David was in violation of the word of God. And we're reminded in Psalm 19, 7 to 14, that the law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. 
More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? David says. Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Listen to these familiar words. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Now listen, as our journey takes us deeper into the 40-year reign of David, it's going to read like a soap opera. And almost all of it can be traced back to the decisions and the actions recorded in chapter 3. His decisions and actions are followed by murder, deception. The wife he demanded to get back winds up despising him and mocks him as he danced before the Lord at the return of the Ark of the Covenant. The list goes on and on and on when most, if not all, of the negative things we read about in the future, in the soap opera life that we're going to encounter, could have been avoided simply by doing what God had said. And the same is true for you, and the same is true for me. Let's look at 22 to 30. We've got four sections this evening instead of our usual three. Pick it up in 22. At that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he sent him away, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away, and he's already gone? Surely you realize that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing. And when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, who brought him back to the well of Sirah. But David did not know it. Now, when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak to him privately and there stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house, and let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper, who leans on a staff or falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had killed their brother Asahel at Gibeon in battle. Now, one thing we need to remember is that Joab was to David, who Abner was to Saul. Abner had killed Joab's brother, even though we could well understand and make a case for it being self-defense. And on Joab's return, likely from raids in Philistine and Amorite territory, he returns to Hebron with a great deal of spoil, which would be beneficial both to David's house as well as all the tribe of Judah. He has then reported the news of Abner's visit, David's covenant with him, and I'm sure that Joab felt betrayed by David's action, the man whom he himself had protected against Abner and his advances and stood in battle with him. And this is evidenced by his questions to the king. What have you done? 
Why did you let him get away? Don't you get it? Joab says to David, he was spying on you so he could plot his next move against you. Now, we don't read anything of any kind of reply from David. But what we do read is that Joab left and sent word, certainly it would have been in the name of David, to Abner. And he went to meet him at the well of Sirah on the north side of Hebron. Now, I don't think it would be a stretch or we would be forcing anything into the text to assume that Abner probably thought the conversation with Joab would go in the same direction that it did with David. But he couldn't have been more wrong. Now, it's noteworthy that Joab takes Abner to the gate to speak with him in private, and that's where he murders him at the gate. And the reason we need to note this is that in the time of Joshua, there were cities that were designated as cities of refuge for those who have killed someone unintentionally, a place of safety from their angry family members. Now, Abner did indeed intentionally kill Asahel, but he warned Asahel multiple times and gave him opportunity to turn aside and live, and he did kill him in self-defense. Now, amongst these cities of refuge, Joshua 27 says... They appointed Kadesh in Galilee, in the mountains of Naphtali, Shechem in the the mountains of Ephraim, and Kirjath Arba, which is what? Hebron, in the mountains of Judah. Hebron was a city of refuge. It was a city in which those who would flee uh, for safety could not be approached by the family members of someone uh, they had unintentionally killed. And while again, that wouldn't fit necessarily the criteria, It was a city where one would feel safe if they'd committed a crime against another family. So he takes him to the gate, technically outside the city of refuge, and he murders him there as if where he murdered him made a difference or overshadowed the fact that he did murder him. And verse 30 says that Abishai was complicit in the scheme, though we don't know exactly to what degree or detail. Now, in hearing the news, David declares his innocence in the matter, and he speaks a curse over Joab's household, but he does not put any direct discipline onto his field general, Joab. And we're also told in 1 Kings 1, 1 to 7, that when King David was old, advanced in years, they put covers on him, but he could not get warm. Therefore, his servant said to him, let a young woman, a virgin, be sought out for the Lord our king. And let her stand before the king, let her care for him, let her lie in your bosom, that our Lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a lovely young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The young woman was very lovely. She cared for the king and served him, but the king did not know her. There was no sexual relationship. Then Adonijah, the son of Hagith, who we met earlier, same Adonijah, exalted himself saying what? I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. And his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, why have you done so? He also was very good looking. His mother had borne him after Absalom. Then he conferred with Joab, the son of Zariah uh, and Abiathar, the priest, and they followed and helped Adonijah. Now here we are, 40 years later in First Kings. And one of the six sons from David's original six wives is now seeking to take the throne from his aged father. And guess who's there to assist him? Joab. Now, Joab remained as David's commander. 
It was Joab who actually helped scheme with David the demise of Uriah the Hittite after David had not gone out at the time of year where kings go to war, stayed back and got Uriah's wife Bathsheba present, tried to hide his sin. Now, even though he remained in David's authority or under it and at David's side for these 40 years or 35 from our text, it seems as though he never forgot what David had done with Abner and what he forced him to do in our final section. Now, here's the thing I think we need to recognize. And here's our third of our four points for the evening. Listen, nothing good will ever come from moral compromise. Nothing good will ever come from moral compromise. Now, I'm not sure we can agree with David's assessment of his non-participation in Abner's death. After all, he knew who Joab was. He knew that Abner had killed Joab's brother. He invited Abner. He set the conditions for the meeting. He sent him away in peace. Yet none of these things justified the actions of Joab. Now this whole scene is a soap opera, lies and deceit and murder and all the things that are commonly associated with such a scenario. But we cannot overlook the fact that the man who said he could deliver the other 11 tribes to David was killed by David's right-hand man. And David immediately distanced himself from Joab, though he did not discipline Joab for his actions. Now, I point that out because we live in a time where many within the church are making moral compromises for the sake of peace and acceptance. And nothing good can come from any moral compromise. And again, we do not let the pressures of culture cause us to turn on one another as we see in this scene, nor do we enter covenants with the world and sinful acts for the sake of peace at any price. That's where you say, amen. Now let's wrap it up with 31 to 39. I'd like to say there's a happy ending here, but I can't. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes, gird yourselves with sackcloth and mourn for Abner. And King David followed the coffin. So they buried Abner in Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king sang a lament over Abner and said, should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put into fetters. As a man falls before wicked men, so you fell. Then all the people wept over him again. And when all the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day, David took an oath saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took note of it and it pleased them since whatever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner, the son of Ner. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I am weak today, though anointed king. And these men, the sons of Zeruiah, are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Now, let's remember something about the relationship between David and Abner. Remember when David and his nephew Abishai snuck in to Saul's camp and Abner was sleeping right at his side and Abishai said, listen, uncle, let me take care of Saul. 
I'll only need to hit him once. I'll put my spear right through his chest, pin him to the ground. He'll never let out, let out a peep and nobody will even know that he's dead till morning. David said, we will not lift our hand against the Lord's anointed, but instead let's take the spear stuck in the ground next to Saul's head and his personal water jug that is a responsibility of Abner and those close by to guard. Now, having done so, what we're told in 1 Samuel 26, 13 to 16, that David went over to the other side of a valley and stood on top of a hill afar off, a great distance being between them. And David called out to the people and to who? Abner, the son of Ner, saying, do you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered and said, who are you calling out to the king? So David said to Abner, are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? meaning you're second in command to the king. Why then have you not guarded the Lord your king? For one of the people came in to destroy the Lord your king, or or your Lord the king. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to what? To die. Because you have not guarded your master, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was by his head. David said, Abner, was worthy of death because he failed his master. And now he laments Abner's death because of the means by which it happened. He makes Joab and his men tear their clothes and put on sackcloth, the array of the mourner for the loss of Abner. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at Abner's grave as he sang a lament over him. We're told the people tried to get David to eat that day, but David took an oath saying he would not eat until the next day or the sun going down. And this pleased and convinced the people that David did not order Abner's death and the nation of Israel would remain one under his authority. Now in verse 39, David says, I'm weak. I can't do anything about this. My kingdom is a new kingdom. And in comparison to my nephews, the son of Zariah, meaning the kingdom is fragile at this point, David says, there's nothing I can do about it. So he had pronounced a curse over him. He wept any more than the people were convinced that he was not part of the efforts to kill Abner. He distanced himself again from Joab and Abishai and declares that vengeance is in the hand of the Lord on men who would do something so wicked. But again... Here we are into David's reign some five years. And it would not be until Solomon was king that Joab paid for the shedding of innocent blood. And 1 Kings 3, 31 to 33 records his demise where the king said to him, king being Solomon's, do as he has said, strike him down and bury him that you may take away from me and from the house of my father the innocent blood which Joab shed. So the Lord will return his blood on his head because he struck down two men more righteous and better than he and killed them with the sword. Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, the commander of the army of Judah, though my father David did not know it. Their blood shall therefore return upon the head of Joab and upon the head of his descendants forever. But upon David and his descendants and upon his house, his throne, there shall be peace forever from where? From the Lord. Now, this is a very odd proclamation made by Solomon because of the content and the two people that he declares to be more righteous than Joab. Make no mistake, Joab is a bloodthirsty killer. There's no question about that. 
But the oddity in what Solomon says here is that Abner was the head of the men who pursued David on Saul's behalf. And Amasa was the commander for Adonijah's army who sought to take the throne, not just from David, but also from Solomon. And therefore, there's but one thing we can conclude from this closing uh, section For these men who were basically traitors, being called more righteous and better than Joab, our conclusion has to be this. And here's our final takeaway for the night. Listen, there is never, say never, there is never any justification for sinful behavior. There's never any justification for sinful behavior. After what they did to me, after how they lied about me, after how they stabbed me in the back, after how they spread rumors about me, all those things do not justify us reverting to sin to cover or get even with someone else. Joab was a brutal man, and he contributed greatly to the atmosphere that David lived and reigned in, the soap opera life. And while feeling betrayed by David for his covenant with Abner is understandable, premeditated murder is not acceptable. And as we have said in the past, we cannot let the sins of others lead to our own. And listen, soap opera living is not what God has for us. Amen? Sanctified living is what God has for us. Living set apart from the ways and pursuits of the world. And that would equate to a life that shuns moral compromise, honors the word of God at any cost, doesn't justify disobedience because of cultural norms or pressures. Now listen, Jesus is coming soon. And this soap opera that we're living in the middle of is someday going to come to an end. But we can minimize the soap opera drama around us by living in accordance with God's word and do the things that it says we are to do and refrain from the things that it prohibits us from doing. It's just that simple. And life will be far better if we live in accordance with God's word. Amen. Now listen, before we wrap up, tonight and say our final prayer and song. It's been a little busy over in Israel. Uh, The number of rockets that have been fired from Gaza have now uh, breached the number of 400. And the Secretary General of the Palestinian uh, Islamic Jihad has now made a declaration of conditions for a ceasefire uh, with Israel. And the conditions are multiple. The three primary are these. One way that you will get the rockets to stop flying into Israel is if Israel will quit targeting those who are trying to destroy Israel. That's condition number one. Condition number two is that they will cease defending their borders and that those who want the right of return, uh, right to breach uh, the Gaza Strip and move into Israel uh, for them to be allowed to do so freely and for Israel to simply do nothing when they set their fields on fire and send their incendiary balloons into their fields and destroy their crops. That's condition number two. The third condition is is that Israel would stop targeting the rocket launchers in civilian areas where the Palestinians place them in order to accuse Israel in the international community of targeting civilians. Well, then, as soon as the Palestinians quit launching rockets from elementary schools and hospitals and industrial areas, then Israel will quit firing upon those areas to protect themselves. But listen, things are heating up, to be sure. God is on the throne. He said it would be like this in the land of Israel in the last days. And the drama continues to build. 
in the Middle East and around the world. And the only conclusion that we can draw from that is that things are wrapping up. Jesus is coming soon. We need to be active and and participate in telling people about the Lord every single day. Time is running out. And this soap opera opera is soon going to come to an end. And we will forever be with the Lord. And when we see him, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Even so, come quickly. Lord Jesus, somebody say, Amen. Amen. And Father, we are grateful for your word tonight. Even the tough stuff. Even these dark and ugly soap opera-like chapters and events that peppered the life of King David and really all of history. But Lord, we thank you that we are not bound by the things that happen uh, in this world, even though we can be impacted by them. We need not be influenced by them. And Lord, we can still live with a perspective with lifted eyes, considering the fact that you have promised us that you would come and receive us unto yourself someday. So, Lord, help us in these last days to learn from the mistakes of those who have gone before. As you said through Paul in the book of Romans in 15.4, that the things that were written before were written for our learning. And, Lord, help us tonight to apply these lessons on how to avoid soap opera living in our own lives and not create self-imposed or inflicted drama. But simply obey your word and refrain from that which you have told us to refrain from, that our lives may be blessed and empowered by you, and that our testimony may be sure and strong all the days of our lives. We give you thanks for our time together in your word. In Jesus' name, and all God's people agreed by saying, Amen.